Hey, this is Ben Max here for a special edition of the Max and Murphy podcast. We're still without Jared Murphy, who's on a much-deserved vacation, but we had to seize an opportunity here to talk with someone very well-known in the New York political media world, Ozzy Pabra, senior reporter from Politico New York, um, the writer, one of the writers of the Politico New York playbook, uh, Twitter celebrity... (laughs) How else, how else do we describe Twitter you? Twitter troll, <laughs> Twitter tenants. Insomniac, maybe? That, um, <laughs> that would work. But anyway, we're here with Ozzy Pabra um, from Political New York for a special conversation to talk with Ozzy before he goes on hiatus. Um, he has been selected for a University of Michigan Knight Wallace Journalism Fellowship. Congratulations on that, by Thank the way. Thank you. Um, so we're just going to chat with Ozzy about uh, how he's feeling and what he's up to as he's going away for, what, nine months? Uh, you make it sound like a... <laughs> going away, yeah. Go, going away, <laughs> no chance of parole. Um, I leave it uh, at the end of this month, uh, at the end of August, and then I come back April or May-ish. Um, yeah, and I I think I was saying this to you, to you before you hit record, but it, it, it sort of... I expect it's going to feel like when you get your arm cut off, or what I'm told is what it's like. Um, you get that phantom feeling of like wanting, like, like you still feel like it's there even though yeah. it's not. So you're expecting to feel like, what, where, what am I doing with the playbook and what's oh, happening? I expect to be, <laughs> so, so it's a funny thing. My girlfriend and I have a dog, and I used to think the dog needed medication because at 4.30 the dog would come scratching at the door expecting one of us to wake up. And I, and I thought the dog needed medication until I realized the dog is acting rationally because I have basically trained the dog to get up at 4.30 right. and I get up and do the right. newsletter. And I, so I anticipate that I'm still going to be waking up at this like crazy hour and, and the dog has learned to do this also now. <laughs> and so. by, by the time you correct your schedule, you'll maybe be back and uh, who, who knows doing what. <laughs> and being asked to do it again. So, so, like, so, so, so many people know you in New York. How long have you been no, doing that? Uh, How long have you been doing this? So what, tell just, you know, a lot of people, like New York is such a transient city, right? People yeah. come in, they get to know New York politics, or they switch, you know, cities, or they switch industries, or whatever. Speaking from experience, sir? Yeah, yes, actually. Uh, but, um... No, wait, no, wait, you grew up here, right? So I grew you, up in Queens, and yeah, then you as moved, you did. Uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Which is how we understand each other with these accents. Yes. <laughs> um, I think I've lost mine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, like, you I left and came back, and, yep. like, I... Sort of never left. So, but in so I, I graduated college in two thousand one in Albany, came back to New York City, and I sort of I I will give the very short version of the story. But um, I walked. I had an interview at the Queen's Tribune, and I sort of thought if I presented myself with enough moxie and arrogance and confidence that they would hire me, and they did. And I, I had no experience whatsoever. Um, and the editor at the time basically made this deal that if you showed enough curiosity and interest in learning, that they would sort of feel like what I'm doing now, right? Like, like somebody will pay you a stipend and like you work and you learn how you do your job as somebody to teach you to do it. And so, so in 2003, I, I started at a local paper, literally no clue about 
anything in journalism other than I wanted to do it. And by 2005, uh, I had gotten to, I got an internship to work for the guy writing a blog at The Observer, which was Ben Smith. And now the leader now, of BuzzFeed. Now like BuzzFeed Mr. Yeah. Mr. Internet, BuzzFeed mm-hmm. Ben. Mm-hmm. So in fact, it was the kid sitting in front of me who first began reading the Politicker blog, told me about it, so I started looking at it, and he had a post that said, you know, apply, you know, looking for an intern. And I was like, all right, like, I'll try. So I contacted him, and what later, what he later acknowledged uh, was that I was the only person to contact him. So he picks me to be his intern, and I, 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 I end up covering the 2005 mayor's race. So I would work during the day at the Queen's Tribune, covering local stuff. And then at night, I would go to Democratic mayoral forums. It was Gifford Miller, C. Virginia Fields, um, Fernando Ferrer, and some guy named Anthony Weiner. And they were all... This is Bloomberg's first re-election. Right, yeah. when, when, when the conventional wisdom was still that the anomaly of, 2000, of 2001 and his, his win could be undone by New York City's natural state of the Democratic Party coming and announcing this guy. So that primary was like a very real fight, but what you had was a more traditional media environment. This is 2005, no Twitter, no Facebook, no social, no internet, no, no iPhone, no free Wi-Fi. Right. But it also meant most people were getting their news not from the internet, but from papers, like physical papers. So you would have daily reporters bored out of their minds covering these Democratic mayoral primary, um, forums, because there were plenty of them, almost every night. And I would be there, and at the end of the forum, I would call up Ben, 10.30, 11 o'clock, midnight, and I would say, and he, and he would ask me, like, he would always ask, like, this was like a, this is like a really smart guy, and he would ask me what I thought. He would ask me, like, what happened? And I would, like, ramble, and I would, you know, I didn't, I, one of the first ones I covered, I was like, I thought the big takeaway was that somebody sat on the floor. Like, like, like the idea of like substance and policy versus politics versus theater and spectacle, like it was all like flat. I didn't know what was important. And he helped me weed out, like no, that, that's not important, this is interesting. No, that's not important. And over time I got to see, by working with him, this idea that you take away one main point from this long, several hours long event and you tell people, like, this one thing happened, and here are the details for it, and you move on. And Really hard to do. It, 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 yeah. It's very hard to do. Imagine not writing a tweet for an entire debate right. and writing one hundred-word story at the end. Like, like in, in some ways, it's, it's like, it's the way you can think of traditional, like, tabloid journalism, you know? You get one bullet in the chamber, and you're gonna fire it, it better be good. Um, but, what was funny was that at the time we were we were accelerating the news cycle because news was coming out at a once a day basically right like if you think of it in music it was like one beat per measure boom mm-hmm. boom boom the daily would come out boom 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 and then the politicers started publishing four items a day and sometimes the item was like oh look at this look at the ninth paragraph of this in this story in Gay City News where somebody says this. Like, that would be a blog item. So now instead of bump, 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 you had something that was like a little bit faster, mm-hmm. like a quarter beat. 
And if we published four items in a day, that was like a busy day. <laughs> and we were able to write stories that got ahead of, at times, when we were doing it good, we were able to write stories that affected what people wrote in the paper later. Um, I remember like, I remember Fernando Ferrer was walking down a street somewhere and somebody had posted on a telephone pole a sign, like it was something like, it's our time now, or, or like there was some like very direct appeal to like racial ethnic politics, which it had nothing to do with the campaign. It just happened to be that someone was saying it in support of him, but not a part of the campaign. I happened to like just notice it. And I remember Ben got, he like sent me a, a, a note saying like this is like this is how we get ahead of the papers and not just you know write the same yeah because mm -hmm. blogs were like very misunderstood when they first came out it was it's simply a publishing platform that we can that's akin to Twitter and Facebook now right it, which is different than a newspaper newspapers publish you know send out trucks and people thought blogs were inherently this weird thing and it was like no it's just a vehicle by which you get information, but you could use it effectively. And when I when I wrote that item about this like random, offensive kind of like sign that someone had put up, we were like breaking a little piece of news and getting ahead of where everyone else was going to be. I remember th th there was another item where I did um where somebody at Newsday, a, a, a person who's no who's no longer there, was covering an event out in Queens where the guy primarying Bloomberg on the Republican line, Tom Ogdenbeni, they were going to cross paths, but like Bloomberg showed up late and Ogdenbeni may have left early and this reporter left early and wrote that they didn't meet. As the local reporter, I had to stay there and they actually did meet and shook hands and I somehow like held my camera up and I just like was wildly trying to take pictures. You had no idea what was going to show up. No, of course not. <laughs> it was like the Jim Espin photo of Spitzer and Swazi shaking hands at the train station, and, you know, and like mm -hmm. you just pull the camera up and just hope something works out. So I got a photograph and I actually have them like shaking hands. So you have a Newsday story saying they never met and we have us with the photograph, like not only did they meet, but they shook hands. So there were fun times where we could like be ahead of the curve and sort of drive traffic in the, drive the daily traffic and um, sorry, there's like, so, there's like something in my eye. I'm not getting uh, sentimental You're talk, getting talking it. about the past, I swear. Um, is that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I, I'm just babbling now. So. Yeah, no, but is that what, is that, is, did you, when you were working days mm -hmm. in Queens and nights for Ben, mm -hmm. is that where you started to get this work ethic that everybody knows you for and the sort of round the clock, I'm always on top of what's happening? I mean, you... I, you respond to things at basically twenty four hours a day. Inappropriate hours. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you just you know what's going yeah. on, and your Twitter feed is constantly going. Is that where you got that, or was it? You, did you even have that before? I think I think that's where the impression started to be. Well, a, I don't fully accept that that that's the impression people have of me. I I always think people have a much different impression of me than I do. Okay. Um, but 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 if people do have that impression, it started there, you know. But like. Like my dad washed dishes and you know parked cars. My mom taught public school for forty years, so like my house, we all like, we always like didn't get along. But the one thing we all sort of knew as a rule was that like, 
you don't be lazy. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was that was the thing that would offend my parents more, like more than anything. And like I watched this for a little bit in college, um, waited tables. So the idea of like having a desk job, I was like, what? This is like so. But but the other thing that actually got me before interning for Ben, I had an I gave my publisher at the Tribune the impression that I was a hard worker. The impression for well, he, he, here's why it was an impression. I like they were gonna fire me at one point because I was so bad, and I just refused to. I I told someone that they're gonna have to fire me, for and drag me out kicking and screaming because I'm not gonna quit. Like they're gonna have to fire me, but I'm not gonna quit if they don't like me. Like they're gonna have to do it. But my dad lived had an apartment on 53rd Street. He was working for a building and the building gave him an apartment and that's where I was staying after college. But on the particular street he was living, you had to move your car by 7 a.m. If I found a parking space on a more forgiving street a block away, I got to stay for an hour later, maybe 8 a.m. No matter what street I parked on, early in the morning I was getting in a car and having to drive from Midtown into Queens for the Queens Tribune. So I'd arrive early you know, I was like forced to, otherwise my car would get ticketed and towed. So I was showing up, I was like the first one getting into the office at this absurd hour. But it looked good. Right, (laughs) so it looked good for the boss. It looked good, yeah. So I think that sort of got the ball rolling and then working that 05 cycle helped. And then I think people like overestimate how difficult it is to tweet like you just hit a button sometimes sure sure yeah. so but no but 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 to be on top of things all the time and to care all the time about what's happening yeah i mean it's it can border on obsessive and and i mean i you know yeah. i know i don't know how to like shut off shut down but you know i don't know maybe i learned that from you, you know? no it, it's it, it's funny because like the newsletters go out and people think that i write the whole thing start to finish when when in when in actuality you know the, there's some voices you might hear in the background it's like <laughs> reed and connor who who actually have a good deal to do with getting the newsletters out but like it's a collaborative effort sure. like it's not a one-person thing but it's easier for people to understand one person it's like movies are not made by the director they're filmed by the director and it's filmed by the cinematographer overseen yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and like like a, a screenwriter writes the thing but the actor thinks he has to reimagine the part and the screenwriter's like no 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 no. what are you doing so like every, it's a collaborative effort but it's hard to understand it that way sure but nobody would call you a figurehead right I mean everybody oh, knows I do. you're putting I, I do <laughs> I, I, I've, I, I've said it numerous times that Josh Benson is the engine and my my other colleagues like Jimmy Gloria, Sally, uh, Laura, at times, you know, whatever formation you want to put them in, they're the engine and I'm a code ornament. I've actually used that analogy. Like, I have this weird name, I've been around, people want, like, you know, I sometimes have a tie or jacket in my backpack, so I can go on TV. But there are other people who do harder work that don't get as much attention. And there's this weird thing that everyone believes the internet to be a meritocracy, that like the best rises to the top. And what's actually the case is that it sometimes just magnifies pre-existing hierarchies and caste systems. So you, so, which is why when you hear a success story, it's because they're the anomaly. You know, you get a smart person who's writing smart things. They might not always get retweeted because they might not have enough eyeballs on them to begin with. And you have someone who's mediocre that already has eyeballs 
yeah. to self no, prophecy and you fall and you, you fail upwards. So I I I've been able to fail upwards enough where I get to like people people presume that I know more than I do. So in order to preserve a very privileged position I have, I very openly borrow from other people. Like Connor just had a great tweet where he found a quote from Robert Moses saying the second avenue subway will never be built. Connor Skelton. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Connor Skelton. So yeah. like so 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 because I, I I'm I'm sort of in this figurehead position of people think I, I have a lot of eyeballs, they will send me stuff and then I use that to give them credit and also and by doing that I get more people to go, oh hey, I, I saw that first over here. So I don't have deep sources at Political New York to counter anything that I think of you or let's keep it that or, way. But, but that may change by the time you hit the door. <laughs> but I know that what you're saying from knowing you now for God four plus years is that um, this is right in line with how I've always known you and I'm sure others do that you're self-deprecating and magnanimous and all that so I'll let you continue that because that is as far as I can tell exactly who you are and how you are I want to hear more about where you went from interning at the Observer Okay. but first I want to say because one of the good rules of podcasting is to break, make sure break for commercials well to make to make yeah, to make sure that not one voice doesn't continue talking the whole time i want to share that when i met you in late 2012 it was because you had information that i didn't that's true um, and because you responded to something i put on twitter i responded to a tweet it was probably one of my first i don't know 50 tweets um, and, and, my, and my response to you was Email me. Let's get coffee. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, it, it was it was it was. Like, we have to meet for coffee now. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So it was email like me. Well, for, I think it was first email me, and then by email you said let's meet for coffee or yeah. something like that. But uh, you had just sort of tweeted. Does anybody have an, uh, a list of all the candidates running in 2013? Admitting my ignorance. or for the 2013. Well, I hadn't. I didn't have a website yet. Right. I just. But, 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 oh, but admitting that you didn't have a list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um. But anyway, you tweeted that, and then somebody I started working on what I was going to do as a website, somebody I was working with on the early just research on it, actually texted me and said, "Hey, look at Ozzy's tweet." And like, you what know, a fool! No, it was more like, "Hey, it's Ozzy. You know, you should respond because we have this list." So anyway, Name I responded. That person. Name that source. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I think I can, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave him out of it. Um, but. Uh, but then we met for coffee, yeah. and sure, I had like this burgeoning list of candidates, but anybody could have started to pull that together. But like right from the start there, you were just like so nice and so helpful and so, you know, giving me guidance. I had no idea what I was doing and just willing to sort of promote the little things that I was putting out there and just, I mean... I'll never forget that, and I haven't forgotten it. Uh, and it's I think I might a testament. Have si- I think I might have sifted you on the bill for that coffee, though. So <laughs> I probably I might have I might have purchased that coffee, but I don't, you probably did actually. Because, but anyway, but that's well, that's how I got to know you was in late 2012 and into 2013. Well, it, it's funny because I because I remember that, and that's an example of like what I'm saying. Like people sort of got to know me or remember me. I have this like weird name. I show up. I was like carrying a video camera for a while. So I would like show up and I never left. And yet there were so many things I didn't know. And part of the reason why I was nice to you, A, because you're a nice guy. Um, and you could probably like take me if, you know, in one or two punches. Um, 
but but you had information that I didn't, and and I and I very much believe in sharing information as a way that we all get smarter. There are some. I I think there are some reporters who are not as collaborative as I would like, and we're like if you go into room nine or or any other bureau you're working alongside your direct competitors and there's not an incentive to collaborate or work together even though on an individual basis that happened more regularly than, than readers would think or even sources would, would think but I very much wanted the body of knowledge to be expanded at that time and I saw that I, I basically I knew that I was not competent enough to organize the information I needed so I said, like, did anyone have this information? And you said, well, in, in a conversation with you, you basically said, oh, I'm working on this. And and that's where you come to. That's where I came to a fork in the road. I can either say, oh, can I borrow your homework? Can I get that? I'll pay back. Um, or what I thought was, shit, if I'm in this position, probably other people are, and I'll probably be in this position again. Because if you, so if I'm disorganized to not make this list. I'll probably be disorganized enough to lose the list. But I thought if everyone can have access to this information, we'll all be smarter and we could write better stories going forward. And I I very much believe in the idea that as long as it's not an exclusive scoop or whatnot, if there's information you have, you know, sharing it makes everyone else smarter. It's it's like Henry in, in room nine, um, who works for Bloom for Goldman, yeah. Henry Goldman, who, who works for Bloomberg LP. There are not not many people are sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal and see his stories. But I, I guarantee you many people that are reading and you know, name whatever publication you want, uh, there's a lot of people who benefit because Henry will ask a question at a at a press conference that will inform other reporters about how to think about the numbers that are being presented by the administration, or de Blasio will answer in such a way that it informs the, the body of reporters who are covering it, and that affects perhaps stories that come out in the end. So if your audience is like an elite group of reporters or editors, you can shape stories beyond whatever number of Twitter followers you have. All right. Sorry. This is no, no, I, I, that's good. No, that's that's your philosophy, and that's what I think. <laughs> you know, I want people to hear because it's been it's been clear. So you're you're at you're if at. That's clear. No, it's <laughs> been clear to editor. me that uh, you are someone who would rather not be cutthroat, and you'd rather share people's stuff that are doing good work. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I think this newsletter makes so much sense for you, and you fit it so well, is because you're like, how do I share? a collection of the best stories out there and the best information out there. And you do all this good stuff around sharing, you know, other people's stuff and, and yeah, it's value. And, and when I started using Twitter, it, I, I, I always thought of it as like public bookmarking. Like, oh, that's an interesting thing. I'll, like, I'll put it up here and I'll go back to it and find it. And, and the newsletter, I always thought, you know, like, when I finally began to like take it seriously, it, it was, I was thinking, well, if I have to like eat my spinach and do all this homework, like it's not much more of an extra step to memorialize it by writing it. Which is funny because I actually have like a weird habit of 
when I read like a book or a magazine, I need to have a pen so I can underline, which is like yeah, you're one of the few people that still does that. Right, right. Yeah. Until I get a tablet and I'll like put whiteout on it or something, ruin it. But okay, so you're at the Observer. Give yeah. The broad strokes of how you went from interning for Ben Smith to your fellowship. So oh so so I did that internship and toward the end of 05 um, I got hired by the New York Press the, the New York Press had a change in staff like the entire staff got fired because they published a story called the 50 funniest things about the Pope dying ha 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 jokes on them right Goodbye. so yeah. so the editor and their very small staff like they, they all end up getting fired and I don't know how but Harry Siegel Harry Siegel, who's like a very, like a brilliant guy, which we all know now, but before that, was brilliant enough to somehow convince this publisher that owned this this all weekly, who would just have to fire his entire staff, to hand it over to Harry Siegel. And Harry knew Ben from the New York Sun, and Ben, like they weren't hiring me at, at the Observer. I lost out my job. Uh, so Ben Smith was writing at The Observer. His number two was Jessica Bruder, which if you follow the Edward Snowden story, she plays a role in it down the road um, because they sent her uh, through a, because New York is a small town. They, she, somebody had picked her to be the recipient of a, like a paper document that was part of what Snowden was like trying to reveal. Um, which, and, that, and Jessica Bruder's part of that story comes out years later. Mm. But she left to go write a book about Burning Man, right? So the so the observer was looking to hire a second person below Ben. And I was like, oh, I'm interning for him. Clearly I'll go for the Queen's Tribune to the Observer. And remember, the Observer at this time was under Peter Kaplan. This was like I thought of it as like a premier Very national. Significant, yeah. mm-hmm. And this is not to say anything about the current state of that publication, but at the time it was viewed in this very particular way. The New York so so they end up hi- so the Observer ends up hiring a guy who was covering the Vatican for the New York Times and who spoke Italian and had been covering it for years. And I was like, how could they pick this other guy? Who the hell is this person? Turns out to be Jason Horowitz, who is like us from Queens, mm-hmm. who goes on to write about the Joe Biden 2008 first clean black candidate mm-hmm. thing. Then he goes to the Washington Post, and then he goes to the New York Times. And oddly enough, he's now back in Italy covering. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah, so like, so his uh, life has gone in a cycle. But, mm-hmm. but because I didn't get that job, they didn't even ask me. So it was not You were like, a close second, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I was a very, very close last. Um, so, so somehow Ben sent my name to Harry. Harry interviews me at the Waverly Diner. Like, I take a dip. Like, I call out sick to, to the Tribune. I mm-hmm. meet Harry... And Harry hires me, and I basically end up writing Queen's stories, and I stretch them into a citywide context. And you know, we wrote about Tom Swansea, we wrote about this graffiti guy named Cope, who threatened Peter Valone Jr. as a councilman, and end up having to like apologize. <laughs> um, all of which was captured on like voice messages, so I got okay. these like very funny yeah. quotes. And we ended up having to walk out after six months because Harry and other people on the staff wrote a series of stories about the Danish cartoons in 2006. The Danish cartoons were um, 
a, a Danish newspaper had a contest to draw cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. It's very challenging, and to many people in the, of the Islamic faith, it's very offensive. One of the rules of Islam is you're not supposed to depict in, in, in images or statues the Prophet Muhammad because they believe it's a form of idolatry. The, the purpose of the Danish cartoon contest was to challenge those perceptions and agitate, you know, make a comment about free speech and tolerance and all that kind of stuff. Um, people who do not care to have a, a real debate about free speech and ideas used the publication of those cartoons to incite violence in various countries. The, the people at the Danish newspaper where the contest was held were threatened physically, there was riots in other parts of the world, and no American paper had published the actual cartoons to see what was causing all this violence. And the New York press was about to publish a series of stories about the cartoons with the cartoons, mm -hmm. you know, and the publisher called Harry and said, you can, you can publish the stories, but not the cartoons. Harry's response was to quit and walk out. And with it, I, I did not write the stories, but when I was told what was happening, I had a very quick decision. Stay and keep my job and pay my rent. Or, or as I later shorthanded it, go with the smart people. <laughs> Harry's a smart person. I just walked out with him and I said, I'll figure it out later. Um, and in the process, I, I ended up emailing Ben and say, hey, Ben, thanks for helping me get this job. We just all quit. Uh, do you know of where I can work next? Right. And of course, because I wasn't that aware, I ended up giving Ben like the first tip about this walkout. And he ended up breaking the news on a Tuesday night. And it became like a national story for a little while. And... Because of that attention, I got hired at the New York Sun, who wanted me to compete with Ben by launching a political blog. Um, so I did that for a couple of months until, you know, Game of Thrones here. Ben leaves the, the musical observer. chairs, maybe. Musical chairs, yeah, <laughs> however you want to call Unless, it. Yeah. Um, ben left the Observer to go to the Daily News to start Daily Politics. The Observer hired. Josh Benson. Josh Benson had was Ben's predecessor at the Observer, so it was sort of like getting your old person back to replace your replacement sort of thing. So Josh is at the Observer, and Josh had been reading my blog at the New York Sun in part because I was emailing him all the time about mm -hmm. it. So he hires me, and that's when I so in '06 I I formally joined the Observer for the first time, and I stayed there for four years. That must have felt like a pretty big accomplishment, or were you like already, you know, like uh, oh yeah, my god, I was like, I was like, holy cow! I I actually never thought I'd, I'd want to leave the place, uh -huh. and you know, it, it was great. I learned a whole lot there. Um, you know, I I caught video, I, I published video of Fred Dicker, you know, shouting down Elliot Spitzer over the whole um, Joe Bruno. Uh, Troopergate scenario you know, thing, which was an amazing video to, to watch. Um, so I, I, I got to do a lot of amazing things, and I, and I learned a lot from a lot of great reporters and editors there. Uh, 
Dana, Reed Pilifon, Elliot Brown, Max Abelson, Michael Calvin was still there when I was there, Tom Gevern, who's just like a, a brilliant guy. Um, it's like so many, so many intelligent people. Steve Kornacki was there. Um, and the paper got sold to Jared Kushner and part of that came a new emphasis on the economics of the paper, which if you're a rich person, you have to decide whether or not you want to throw money into a money-losing venture and just sort of value it in a way that you can't quantify, or do you try to make it profitable and therefore sustainable and you get to sort of make an enterprise that operates in the free market the way other businesses do. And those changes after a while, after four years, led to a change in editors. And then at some point, when editors leave, and you know, and, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself, but like, if I think I can't learn anything from a particular place, then it's like, oh, then I'm just here for the money. Then yeah, you sort of like- Time to look around. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. like you sort of wonder like, like oh, the, if, if this is how I'm spending my time and this is how I'm getting compensated by money, but not education, then what am I doing? I, I left the Observer in 2010 to go to WNYC to, to do something different, and they took a chance on me. A, a guy with no radio experience who stutters, has a weird accent, and I did. I, I covered the 2010 election cycle for them, with them, I should say. And they have a lot of great reporters there: Arun, Bridget, Anna Sale was reporting. Right, right, right. Brian Lair. Uh, like great, great people, and uh, Bob Henley was there when I was there, um, and I got to understand the need for brevity and the need to present and capture, like like broadcast is a whole other animal, but uh, and, and that's different than print. And I learned to develop those muscles and to be on air and talk. And, Kind of comes back, right? Having to do like a two-minute WMIC news story kind of comes back to that one of those early points you were making about sending Ben trying to like right. Ben helping you Synthesize. learn what the big takeaway is going to be. Yeah, because that's something you're really good at now. I mean, I noticed that like when we do New York One together or something, you're sort of like, here's the key point. <laughs> you know, you like <laughs> whether or not it's right or wrong. Well, I have, I have but, one point. But, well, <laughs> I mean, often there are several points, but you right. have a clear one that's your takeaway. Yeah, and you're good at that. Yeah, the, yeah, there's um, I'll I'll probably d- disagree about whether or not I'm good at it. But the idea that like but you, you don't make, just you recap. Make, you're like, oh, here's what happened. You're right. Like, here's an insight. Right. Here, here's like casting the ball forward. Here's like the way to look at it. And I I think a lot of people in print don't fully appreciate how difficult it is to analyze something for broadcast. One of the best educations I ever got was when the the uh, Stan Brooks, the late Stan Brooks. Um, and Rich Lamb, like radio guys, were forced to file stories in the basement of City Hall 4A when I was down there. And now, I'm a guy that's like very weird and I hate noises around me, like people eating carrots and you know apples and stuff and just drive me nuts. You know, and also people clearing their throat of flat, you know. <laughs> but when you put everyone in a confined space, like you're forced to like, you, you can't help but hear and see what other people do. And it was amazing. I would come back from press conferences with nine or ten pages of notes, and this might be a story, that might be a story. And literally, Ritz Lamb, a guy who is like the age 
like is, is like our grandfather's age, would come in, call up his editors, and he would synthesize everything that just happened in like five words. And before I had my computer turned on, he was audibly filing his story. And I don't remember seeing ma many notes from this guy. Stan Brooks was doing the same thing. And I realized that like these older guys who I thought are slow and behind the curve and look at this, I'm gonna beat them on a... These guys had this technology that was very hard to beat, which was that they were listening. And they were thinking. And they were attentive to detail. And they knew what was bullshit, they knew what was news, and they thought, here's this broad audience, here's what they need to know, we're done. And it, it helped me better appreciate the idea of getting rid of the clutter and yeah. focusing on something. And you, you've you been doing a lot of NYPD reporting for yeah. Capital, which became Politico. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we'll <laughs> get into all the de details of that, but that is very different than just thinking about the broad 880 drive time right. key takeaway of the day. Yeah, so... After the so after four years at the Observer, I left in twenty ten. Went to WNYC. After one election cycle, WNYC, I got antsy to go back to like print reporting. I went back to the Observer under a new editor. Uh, was there for a couple of months, and I left the Observer a second time to go and rejoin my colleagues Josh Benson, Tom Ergevern. Dana Rubenstein, Reed Pillifont, Joe Pompeo, uh, and uh, Jillian Reagan. And that was the, the original team at what was called Capital in New York. Cap so Capital in New York was like reconstituting an earlier version of The Observer. And we did that from 2011 to 2013. In 2013, Politico bought Capital. They later changed the name and it became what you now know is Capital of New York, so... Political New York. Yeah. Political yeah, New York. Yeah. One of those... No, that was, I mean, that was the first... Yeah. That was one of the first places when I came back to New York and got into this stuff. I mean, that was, that was like, such a resource, and you guys were doing so much good stuff. I mean, you, you know, you and Dana yeah. and Reed were writing it all, basically. Well, it, it, it's funny, because... I mean, I know Joe was doing yeah. media stuff, but that wasn't exactly my thing, but... Yeah. And what was funny was that we actually weren't writing it all, but we were writing sort of forward-looking, unapologetically parochial stories about New York, and if we could aggregate in the morning with a newsletter, write smart stuff, and not just book reports about what happened today, but what does this mean? Why is it relevant? What's the, like, translating Cuomo speak and explaining, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement, movement as it was happening, the AP stories about the NYPD surveillance, things were going on, the stop and frisk debates. We were getting a lot of information and we were trying to do more than just write down what people said. So you weren't reading yesterday's news today, but we were trying to write as much as we knew and be you know, forward looking. One of the things I did was profile Obi Murray, who was the campaign manager for Bob Turner when he when the Republican won Anthony Weiner's seat. Not, not many places cared to write a 2,000 word profile of that guy. You know, I was like, all right, why not? Yeah. You know, he was, he was a person in the news and he 
deserved attention. You know? I mean, I think one of the I think you're getting at it. And one of the words I always sort of would use to describe it, and I still use to describe, as I've said, sort of you and and definitely like Dana's writing. You know, it's sharp. Dana's brilliant. Sharp. Like you get you guys just did such sharp stuff at Capital, and that's obviously why Politico was like, yeah, I think this <laughs> makes sense for an investment. Yeah. And we're looking to build our brand. Here's a perfect way to already be, you know, well yeah. into doing that in New York. Yeah. How did that, did that, was that really gratifying when that happened or? How? I mean, it, it was nice that we didn't have to worry about the place closing down. Um, but it, it was a little bit, it was a little bit, you know, anxiety filling because I, I always, like I, I actually applied to work at Politico years earlier and they turned me down. So to sort of, it, it felt like sweet revenge to have that company that come want to you. work. Yeah, it, it was it was really funny. Um, Seems like a theme here. <laughs> well, d- d- there was a theme. Like I couldn't like I, I couldn't get a job at a daily, so I ended up at a local weekly. You know, I ended up working at the Observer. You know, I I didn't even couldn't even find a place to sit in room nine, so I was sitting in four A. When I was asking Bloomberg about running for president all the time, it, you know, he would make a, he would make fun of me, and everyone in, and all the reporters on the beat would just laugh. And I, I, I very much took it as like, oh, I'm a kid, inexperienced. No one's really standing up for me. Now I'm going to go back and sit in the basement and write my stories. I, I, I very much, you know, maybe this is like growing up in Queens and having to like live your life in Manhattan for work. But like, I, I very much had this feeling of being an outsider. I'm writing online and everyone's writing in print and all this stuff. So at some point, I just like stopped trying to break into the party I was never that I never felt like I invited to, and then just was like, all right, this, this is where I'm going to be on the internet. And then, lo and behold, the the, you know, the the city gets rezoned and the party moves to where I'm standing. Right, right, right. Yeah. So um, I won't keep you too much longer, no, no, no. but. Um, so what, you know, like as you, you were obviously, we're not here to like say you're not coming back to New York, but as you are heading to Michigan for nine months, mm-hmm. I mean, what are like, what are the, some, what are some of the things you look back on here for what, so what has it been 15, 18, 20, how many years have you been doing basically like New York news and politics? March, 2003 is when I started. Right. So 50, about 15 years. Jesus. Yeah. Well, not quite, but yeah. Wow. Get off my course. It's a good run. Turned out. Uh, <laughs> so... What are, I mean, what's like, are there, are there things that stand out to you? I mean, we've talked about a bunch of them, but like, are there, are there certain things that you're, cause you're going to this fellowship, you might do some teaching, you're obviously working on your own project, but it's I mean, all they, secret, they picked secret. you for a reason. Uh, it was because I'm good looking. Yes. Um, Damn podcast, wrong format for that. No, I, I have a face for radio. <laughs> Everyone said it. Um, it's, it's funny, there was a going away party for me uh, a couple days ago, and on, on our Facebook, the, the picture that was used on the Facebook invite was of David Schwimmer, which, ah, which, was, mm-hmm. which is a very inside joke. Um, that you just, popularized, though, through your Twitter profile, which ah, I know well from oh, right, Bali, right. Because, you know, Middle because, Eastern David Schwimmer. Yeah. Uh, a, a name that, was, that I was called by comic, the, the Intel, <laughs> Triumph, the, the Intel comic dog. Um, no, so I, like, it's, it's all gotten very weird, um, media and technology and covering stuff. Um, it used to be that if you read the papers and, and looked at Twitter and Facebook, you were, like, all set. But 
there's so much news coming out of Washington, and by news I mean there's outrage, there's fact checking, and then there's oh shit, this is actually a policy that's going to affect many people. On top of so, so that's a lot of information coming out of Washington that had not been coming out for a while. Like the like there was a good chunk of the Obama years where the news coming out of Washington was basically stalemate. Right. Um, which meant, I didn't realize it at the time, but it meant we all had the luxury to only focus on local stuff if you wanted to. And locally, you know, 2007, there was no city elections or state elections, so it was like a weird drought. Um, but there was, you know, the presidential stuff was starting right. on, the, on the early end. Um, it, things have gotten faster. Like, more content is distributed and less information is understood. Um, I think Ezra Klein did a podcast with Chris Hayes and Klein said something like, reporters are, are too easily offended and not scared enough about what's coming out of the White House. And, and I would modify that slightly for, for the local stuff and just say, like, there's a lot of content that's coming out and I don't think a lot of comprehension. And, and I, I would apply that to readers in general. I, I, there's a lot of reporters that are really, really smart that I, I don't think always get the chance to show it. Um, you have space constraints in newspapers, you have editors that hold stories for too long, you know, the, the New York Times section gets truncated, you have a mayor that doesn't grant access regularly to reporters where a free flow of questions and answers benefits everyone. So you have very smart conversations happening in room nine, literally among the reporters, that doesn't always make it into the paper, which is very similar to the environment that led to the creation of blogs where smart insiders could like share information. And I, I think reporters are reporters are doing a lot of good work but it's not always translating to the kind of uh, reaction that most people expect you know Trump can sort of shrug off inaccuracies and just yell louder and just deny you know factual things mm -hmm. um, even when presented with evidence to the contrary he could just like not care and Oddly enough, his supporters will not care, and even more surprisingly, public servants in his administration will defend, at times, the, the indefensible. And it used to be the case where I thought, as a reporter, if I publish something that disproved a public statement by someone, game over, I win. You know, like, I've proven that what you said was wrong, and now it's the case where somebody just may not care, or somebody may take may take my reporting as proof of bias in some in some way. It, this is almost like it's almost like a it's almost like a batter now gets to throw out the pitcher for <laughs> for throwing too many strikes. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like it, uh -huh. like there's something very weird about this environment. Um, and I think part of it connects to the economics of journalism where fewer reporters are covering areas that most need it. Um, Bronx courthouse, you yeah. know 
the, the Bronx the in general. Capital, yeah, the know, state capital, yeah. The state capital, underserved communities. Yeah. You know, pub, like public housing. It, the, the, the number of residents of public housing in New York is larger than, mo- than most cities. Right. You, I don't think there's a publication that has a dedicated public housing reporter. Greg Smith does a lot of, right. uh, Daily News does a lot of stories about that. But not dedicated. But that's one person covering an entire city. Like, when I was at the Queens Tribune, we, we, we always knew that Queen, you know, reported. Queens would be, if an independent city, among the top five oh, right, yeah. largest. Yeah. We had four reporters. Now, granted, you have some administrative functions that don't are not housed specifically in Queens, but imagine having four reporters for the fifth largest city in the country. Like, there's something inherently, like, weird about that. Um, and that's just like a very shorthanded example of what I think happens nationally, where you have Rust Belt cities, you know, towns that are suffering from population decreases and job loss, that are also not getting locally trusted information, which then opens up the door to all sorts of other content that may or may not be helpful in 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 informing people so they can make responsible decisions. And it's not the role of a reporter to sort of make sure somebody eats their vegetables, but it is sort of incumbent upon a reporter to at least show them the menu. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, sorry. No, no, there's a lot there. I, I, and, and For the people that listen all the way to the end. No, no, yeah, no, I mean, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain from, from jumping in there because I do want to ask you um, just about what this yeah. next thing is because I want to sure. get you before you go and then hear, you know, well, no, like, but, like but, Kaiser but, Sose? but <laughs> I want you to, you know, sort of talk about what you're expecting to do. Yeah. And then we will obviously touch base, um, while you're doing it, but you know, then you can listen back to this when you've done it and when you're, but so you're going to this fellowship yeah. and your topic is oh reaching beyond natural audiences, rebuilding media credibility through technology. I should have had an editor for that. So everybody listening, uh, Ozzy's going to rebuild media credibility for, Ozzie, for us all. Ozzy said media cre- credibility is something that needs to be rebuilt. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, yeah. which, like, looking back on it now, I wish I would have reframed it or used different words because I'll, I'll tell you, the, it's not, you know, there's a joke. A uh, guy walks into a doctor's office and says, doctor, I think I'm dying. doctor says, why? The guy goes, oh, it's because I'm hurt. And the guy points here, 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 and here. You know, arm, leg, you know, arm, leg, chest. And the doctor goes, oh, you're not dying. You just have a broken finger. Um, just because a certain segment of people don't trust the New York Times and don't trust the New York Post and don't trust the Daily News or don't trust the Observer, yeah, the Politic, or, you know, Politico, just because there's a, a portion of the public that says, I don't trust fill in the blank, doesn't mean fill in the blank is wrong. It may, you know, um, the question about, the, the, the part of the question about me looking to rebuild media credibility is sort of looking at whether or not that, uh, is that a credibility problem among a population that is even open to, to hearing, to having that change? Um, it's sort of like, so, so that that's one of the things I I, I want to look at. This like, is about how do you reach how do you reach like, the people like, who don't trust the media? Right now, now that's going to include some people that just willfully will never ever accept anything other than what they wanted, than than what they like, which is Trump great, critic bad, 
food, <laughs> sleep, mm-hmm. end of story. You know, like, so, so there are some people who will never accept and who would never accept an, an, an alternate answer to that kind of skepticism. But there are other people who I think are persuadable, you know, like, like campaign consultants always talk about, you know, people who work in campaigns always talk about, like, the voters you are, that are in your court, voters that will never be, like, in your corner, and then there's, like, this disappearing middle ground of, like, people that are convincible. Sure. So I want to see if I can identify who is open to rethinking, to rethinking their sources of information. So that's a that's a credibility part. Um, share like getting information beyond natural audiences. We are with the economics of journalism relying less on ads and more on subscription. You're having more people. I think that's helping fuel in some ways. It is helping fuel this fracturing of the readership, where more people are self-selecting the information they get. They're standing in spaces where they're only hearing and seeing information that sort of comports with what they already believe and know. I have my go-to re- I have my go-to publications and that's all I go to. Well, it's more like if you like like trusted sources of, of information are needed, but if if your sources only describe immigration or, you know, food policy in a certain way, are you, are you at least aware that there's another version, there's another way to describe it that may challenge your, your note, that may challenge what you assume to be true? You know, I believe the earth is round. That doesn't mean I, I and, and it's based on science and fact, and I don't want to be exposed to information that challenges it because that's not reputable. There are other conversations that people have about economics, taxation, about what you do with bike lanes and whatnot that that have more credible have more credible descriptions and solutions and voices, and it's not always good to stand in your own, you know, part of the you know information silo and never be exposed or even consider the fact that there's something outside of it. And a a dangerous version of that is when you're standing in the in the you know in the in front of Breitbart and that's all you consume and you're listening to Fox and Friends all day. Um, those don't give you a full and complete picture. You know, Mike Wallace is a fantastic fantastic reporter, and his Sunday shows is like is, is that's the noise that's of my it. press pass <laughs> falling off the table into the good symbolic. Time. Yeah, but like if you are only getting information that validates what you already believe, you are very likely not getting a full and complete picture. And I want to see it, is there a way to use technology to get information, to, to get like a New York Times story in front of someone that only trusts what they see on Fox News? If not to change their behavior, at least to say, you know what, yes, that's what you're reporting, I understand it, I still want to watch what I want to watch. Like, I think um, Chris Hayes' show is very entertaining. He's a very, very smart guy. I want to also know what's happening on Fox and Friends so I'm aware of what the conversation is. I, I think there's a, a, a potential for people to self-segregate into very safe environments, you know. 
Yeah, I think we've, I mean, we've seen a lot of that, right? You know, yeah. and, and that sort of is not unlike what happens in housing, right? Like people move to neighborhoods where they feel comfortable and oftentimes that's where people look like each other. And where you have some problems at times is when there's efforts to change that and it sometimes happens in very sloppy ways and, and very unconstructive ways. But when it works well, you have integrated neighborhoods that are beautiful. Like when my family, which is biracial, moved into our part of Bayside, we didn't look like everyone else, and we still don't. But it was a wonderful experience because everyone got along. We all walked to Bell Boulevard and like had our food and went to the public schools. And I think if you had spaces where people were getting together more regularly with people that they don't always agree with and don't always get along with and don't always look like each other, like you get an understanding about how to get along and at least how to have conversations and potentially learn new pieces of information. So you're going to spend so I'm going to a like good re- chunk of nine months. So I'm, so I'm going to re-engineer and like save the world. <laughs> so. But you're going to spend a good chunk of nine months trying to figure out entry points to, to do that? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, is there a way to present information other than a 6,000 word front page New York Times story that communicates to people? You know, if you look on the New York Times homepage, like especially on your phone, after after their top story, one of the main things they have is the daily, you know, the Michael Bavar um, podcast, podcast yeah. where he introduces himself from the New York Times. Oh, Michael Bavar. <laughs> it's like, oh, I thought you were Michael Bavar from the New York Times. It's not the New York. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of a funny introduction to it, but um, and, and that's my jealousy that he's like a big famous person now. Um, and I just toy with the idea of doing a podcast one day, but they're they're featuring the daily very prominently and not by happenstance or coincidence. They are featuring it because they are developing a new relationship with readers. Um, and the New York Times is doing very, very well in the age of Trump, yeah. despite what he says. But even they are finding that they need to do something different with the audience that they currently have, which should be a signal to a lot of people. If you are writing very good investigative stories, you may also have to think about visual graphics that go along with it, which could be shared online. And I know a lot of people are thinking about it. What I'm saying is I think reporters very much have to think about it. And I, which is not to say you take your eye off the ball of the substantive work you're doing. It is saying you have to add to your repertoire of what to do. It is no longer the case that you hit send to your editor and have the editor, you know, publish a story and you go home. Like there is a way of actively sharing and promoting your own stories that is responsible, that is ethical, that is engaging with readers, even skeptical readers that yell at you very loudly. There is a need to do that, and it is more pressing than ever because um, I think diversity doesn't happen by accident. I think sharing and learning doesn't happen by accident, and I think if what we had done in the past doesn't always the same exact habits don't always work in the future when when the challenges are evolving. Um, so I'm looking at how to use the best practices from very good journalists with the best of what technology can offer us to get people to engage with each other in more responsible, constructive ways. You know, there, there used to be a time where people watched Crossfire on CNN um, with John Stewart you know, help blow up. And, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and end. And now, you know, rather than having Tucker Carlson yell at the Raging Cajun, 
now you have Tucker Carlson yelling at people on, on one network. On, right. on one network. Right. So right. there's an argument to be made of: is it better to have them at the same table rather than on different networks? Tucker Carlson's a very smart guy. I ran into him once at an Al Sharpton event. Like this is not a guy who is who is unopposed to being around people who don't think like him. But when you put someone who is as ideologically um, loyal as he is and reflexively defending Trump and more willing to find you know fights with liberals when you put that person on a network where you're not exposed in a constructive way to an, to opposing ideology that's not entirely helpful and Fox News does it MSNBC does it I would argue MSNBC the difference with them is that they actually adhere much more closely to fact-based reporting than some people on Fox. But there, there, there's a need for, for a bringing together, and if there's a way to do it with technology, while also ruthlessly adhering to facts that I think are getting overlooked, I think that can create something that will hopefully keep me employed. Well, yeah. You Sorry. have, uh, Sorry. A, fun nine, blah, blah, blah. You have a fun nine months ahead of you. No, that's yeah. exciting, and I think, you know, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. You're looking forward to, like, the next newsletter. That's what you're looking well, forward to. Well, I'm always to. looking forward to the next newsletter, and I'm looking forward to the email I'm going to send you to say, hey, include our, our story <laughs> in the next newsletter. <laughs> I, but, I, um, I'm going to put on an away, an, an away message, and it's going to be like, peace now. <laughs> yeah. Stop sending me stuff. Basically. Um, but thank you for chatting. It's it's always good to talk with you and fun to talk with you. Uh, always good to talk on the record here. Ask people to call me at seven a.m. Yeah, uh, I'll avoid that. But um, no, thanks for the time. Thanks. You know, I know a lot of people who read Gotham Gazette. Obviously, uh, our newsletter subscribers and read a lot of your stuff at Politico and have known you for a long time and followed you. So I think I wanted to give a chance for for folks uh, to to hear more from you and hear your thoughts on on things. So thank you. And I'm going to finish by saying thank you again for late 2012 into 2013 into today. I don't know if I'd be in this line of work. Oh, you know what? You know what? That that is fake news. That is fake news. I was saying earlier today to one of my colleagues in the newsroom, I have never met anyone who has gone from a sta- a completely unknown position to uh, op-ed in the new in, in the Daily News and get called in to be a guest, a, a featured guest on the Brian Lehrer show. I have never seen anyone do it, and I I have not managed to do it. And you did it from a from a flat-footed, standing still position. So you have okay, but leapfrogged <laughs> over the high bar. No, while I am still while I still have while I'm still tying up my sneakers. What I, that's not true. What I'm saying, and I'll, I get the last word because this is my uh, podcast. No, what, what I'm saying is any of that that's worked out for me and continuing to do this hard work for four years now was very much aided by your generosity of thought, spirit, sharing stuff as we discussed at the top of this hour, uh, and I appreciate that, so I thank you. And I'm going to edit that out on my, pod, I wish my part you, of the podcast. <laughs> and I wish you the, the best of luck. Thank you.